0: Welcome to the Focus & Chill podcast where we discuss productivity tactics that work for neurodiverse individuals.
1: Every episode we interview guests with lived experience of neurodiversity who also have a solid productivity and habit game and pass the learnings on to you, our wise and benevolent audience.
0: We're your hosts, Jeremy and Joey.
1: I'm Joey and I coach creatives to get moving on their most ambitious projects through the power of solid habits and strong focus. I'm also a perpetual student of psychology and perpetually on a quest to a one-armed
0: And I'm Jeremy, I'm a neurodiverse software developer turned startup founder building habit and focus software for people with ADHD. My cool party trick is leaving parties early so I get to sleep on time to do my 3 hour long morning routine. The Focus & Chill Podcast is brought to you by Focus Bear, a habit and productivity app that makes healthy habits and deep work the path of least resistance. If you have a tendency to check emails or scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning, but long to develop a meditation and exercise habit first thing, Focus Bear can help you. The app blocks distractions on all your devices and guides you through your habits one at a time. Throughout the day, Focus Bear assists you to stay in deep work by blocking websites and apps that are unrelated to your chosen focus mode. Life's not all about work though, you'll be prompted to take regular breaks to rest your eyes and stretch your muscles. At the end of the day, FocusBear helps you switch off. Work related apps get hidden so you can unwind and sleep well. Check out the app by going to focusbear.io. Welcome to episode number 28 of the Focus and Chill podcast. We're thrilled to be joined by Alastair Gerling today. Alastair is a PhD candidate at Monash University's Emerging Technologies Research Lab, where he investigates personalized assistive technology to help neurodivergent students. Outside his research, Alistair works as a learning designer for next year, designing assistive technology for people with dyslexia, dyspraxia, and other conditions. A man of many talents, he also does freelance web design. Welcome to the show, Alistair. Hi, guys. How's it going? Really good. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. To kick uh-huh. things off, can you tell us about your personal journey with neurodiversity and becoming aware of your own neurodivergence? Absolutely. I think
2: Lots of people might feel this way, but I feel very lucky that I became aware of my neurodiversity and sort of, I sort of did an in-depth discovery and unpacking of what it was for me to learn and be in the world, just as technology got faster, fast enough to operate at the speed of uh, people's minds. And so I can't really disentangle me realizing what it was to learn with me realizing what it was to learn with technology and with other people. By connecting with them in words and also digitally and all this stuff. So for me, that's this big shift that I think uh, lots of people, maybe in my age group, with neurodiversity, know that maybe people in the generation above didn't know, and then the generation I guess above that, uh, you know, being neurodiverse, having ADHD or dyslexia or whatever it might be, just was not an available condition, <laughs> um, and now it is, um, and then now uh, sort of digitally mediated. But for me, uh, I was very lucky. Uh, I had two. Academics uh, and doctors in my family. And so they discovered very early on uh, that uh, me and my twin sister uh, and my older sister, we all had some form of learning difficulty. Uh, and so uh, I had a very proactive family. Uh, and I was sort of constantly told that actually uh, to learn was what was valuable and to exceed academically was only a byproduct of that learning. Um, and so for me, unpacking why I was outside of the norm in one way or another, it was just a byproduct of me, you know, trying to bundle along. And make sense of what it was for me to just be in the world and I think that sort of sense that you know any disorder you, as, as a sort of some uh, medical practitioner might describe it really that wasn't the frame I ever used that wasn't something that we really spent time talking about we spent time talking about uh, what was happening and what we I was struggling with um, and then yes there were you know trips to uh, psychiatrists and educational psychologists and speech therapists and, and so on uh, when I was growing up but I think Um, That was kept at bay and and what was kept, the sort of key focus was uh, how we were and how we could be happy and how we could learn. Um, So there you go. That's kind of how I came to neurodiversity.
0: I love that. And it's such an important perspective to see it as almost a fortunate occurrence and also how you were describing previous generations that even probably 10 years ago, there was probably a lot more stigma about various aspects of neurodiversity, whereas now there's probably a lot more embracing of some of the positive aspects of it.
2: I think so. Um, and I was the first kid in my school to have a laptop. I used to have a, I used to sit in the back and in the corner because that was where the only plug in the room was. And I used to have back problems because the laptop was like 15 kilos or something. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I was getting to the point where I couldn't focus and I couldn't uh, write. And my handwriting, even now, I, I often can't read my own handwriting. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I would get, you know, everyone would get A's, B's, D's. You know, I would get you, unmarkable, right? And then oh, I got wow. my laptop one day um, and they were suddenly A's. Um, uh, and then even, even f- since then, I, be, I got to be able to speak my work. Uh, And as far as I'm aware, I was the first kid in the UK to be given uh, the ability to use voice-to-text in their exams uh, for GCSEs, which is the big exam there at 16. Uh, Mm. So I feel like I really was absolutely, you know, not a moment too soon. It couldn't have happened even months before it happened to me. Uh, And so it does feel like I'm just absolutely at the edge creeping forward. And that that kind of feels so, so lucky.
0: Mm. And now you're paying it forward with the research that you're doing and helping other people.
2: Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I kind of, I like that idea. It's the idea that I, I think about a lot, which is that if only there was someone like me that I could have spoken to when I was a little younger, that would have been really, really awesome. Um, but also, you know, the fact is that most people who have experience with neurodiversity have experience with knowing what it's like to be thinking faster uh, than your own mind can communicate outwards. The idea of having nuance and detail locked away in a way that it can't escape. Uh, lots of people never go keep going in academia because lots of forces in academia try and sort of, you know, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. It has to be communicated in these papers, it has to be communicated in text in this highly structured way, in a perfectly spelled way, in a well referenced way, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so it means how many people with dyslexia or ADHD or any kind of neurodiversity actually end up going through to PhDs? No one. It's a tiny little number. And so I feel like I've slipped through the cracks and I feel. A responsibility, not just to help people, but a responsibility to use this kind of little glimmer to keep going. Uh, so, yeah, it's exciting.
1: Yeah. And, and continuing on that idea of painted it forward, Alistair, like, uh, mm-hmm. can you tell us a bit more about uh, the current
2: things that you're working on? Totally. Um, so for me, there's kind of two strategies that are happening simultaneously. Uh, I've got lots of other little projects and things that happen. My life is not by, you know, big pillars, but really by single projects. I quite like it that way. I quite like the novelty of of those new things, but usually uh, they daisy chain into one another. So one project ends and there's some thread of that I want to keep going and so I'll build that into the next project. But the the two elements are, one is I'm doing research uh, and that's to create uh, theories and strategies and concepts that haven't been really written down or thought of before uh, or expand on the ideas that have already been written about and to understand what it is to be a neurodiverse person and to Uh, extend your consciousness into digital environments and use technology to sort of overcome uh, the barriers that exist in our own minds, but also the barriers that exist in society that we're forced to deal with. Um, And then the other half of that is I spend time actually working with students and parents and running sessions at schools about digital literacy and particularly about like assistive technology is the term that everyone uses. Um, But for me, it's just maybe uh, embedded technology, embedded technology or embodied technology or something like that. I'm still, I'm still working on language. My, my PhD title is Digital Prosthetics, Neurodiversity and the Connected Mind. So that's the, that's the single sentence, but then there's like 40,000 words worth of explanation to make that make sense.
1: And that's actually the first time I've heard the term uh, embodied technology. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. Could, you, could, you, um, could you tell us a bit more about uh, what, what that is?
2: Sure. So for me, one of the easiest ways to think about neurodiversity and how to navigate the world um, a neurotypical world in a neurodiverse way, uh, which is a really exciting prospect. Potentially, means you can do unexpected and delightful things that might delight you and delight other people as well. Um, But there's kind of three ways of approaching difficulties that you encounter. One is the way that anyone who experiences this stuff or knows anyone who has uh, dyslexia or ADHD or, or autism or any kind of neurodiversity knows. And that's to brute force it. That's number one. And that is, it takes 45 minutes for someone to to sit down and do this thing. It'll take me four hours and I'll just do it. Um, And it's hard and it's not fair, um, but it is the strategy that people use because it works a lot of the time. And a lot of the stuff you guys talk about on the podcast and a lot of stuff I think we all in this space uh, read about and think about are ways that we can kind of bring that down, that we can make it less painful. But that's brute forcing is the first option. The second option is to learn your way around it or to restructure the world around it. And that is... Uh, if it's in dyslexia, it's like, oh, you can't read a traditional, you know, using traditional learning methods. So you'll learn phonics, um, or uh, you'll make a room much more ordered and organized, or you'll use um, music that helps you focus, like Endel or some other kind of binaural beats or something like that, right? So you'll use strategies that will change and shape the world in your favor. Or maybe you take meds or you use other kind of therapies as well, all that stuff. That's category two. Um, and the third strategy is using technology to leapfrog the problem. To jump over the problem entirely. Uh, and what that, for me, looks like is, uh, if someone really struggles to read, uh, you can brute force it and read for 10 times as long. You can um, try and teach them to read in an alternative way, uh, or you can use an audiobook. <laughs> and so the question then is, well, what's your challenge? What's the goal you're trying to achieve? And for a lot of kids, I think they don't need to be literate. They need to be literary. They need to be well-read and understand the meaning of ideas and understand what it is to communicate. And you can do that with audiobooks really easily. Most of the reading I do now, I call it reading, it's still actually listening, right? I listen to And it's great because I can do the dishes and listen to an academic paper. I can go for a walk and, you know, uh, listen to a book. And you can't do that kind of stuff without technology helping us do it. And so that's category three leapfrogging. And that's what my work is really all about, uh, is using technology to, to jump ahead, to jump beyond, and to take us not to parity, not to equal, but actually above so if you're on neurodiverse, you can take your weakness and not make it equal, but make it a strength. And that's what my, my whole life right now is sort of becoming about.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> what do you use to read out academic papers while you're doing household chores? I think Joey does something similar. Really
2: good question. I constantly, because I test apps all the time, and testing uh-huh. different tools, it, it cycles through. There's a few, the one I'm loath to, to recommend because I, uh, it's called Speechify. It's, it's a very common one. And I find it frustrating because there's a yearly fee and it's quite high. And I think that's not fair. Um, I think it's, uh, and so then also there's a classic thing, which for people that maybe forget stuff is giving you a four day trial and then charging you for a year does get on my nerves. (laughs) That's annoying. Yeah. Um, Classic ADHD
0: tax there.
2: Yeah. I'm just like, that's brutal. Uh, And you can't go after those people because we're the people that really need it. And and that's not cool. Um, But I use Speechify. I use an app on uh, iOS and Mac called Voice Dream, which is wonderful. It's made, as far as I know, by one guy called Winston, (laughs) but he's awesome, so if you email him, he'll get back to you. Um, And I use that all the time because it will let you import from Google Drive or any kind of cloud service or or iCloud or something, and it will just let you read straight away. And for people that really like to focus on a single word at a time, it will read the audio to you and it will highlight one word at a time in a line. And so you can really remain hyper-focused if you want on reading papers. And then I can go up to three or four times speed so I'm reading something like 800 words a minute if I really need to, or if it's a really boring paper or something, I can go through really fast. So that's awesome. And that's the, that's the leapfrogging, right? Like we were talking about is, you know, I'm not going, I'm not matching normal speed like everyone else. I'm reading three times as fast. Like that's crazy, right? It's, it's super, super cool, but, but really surprising that technology can let us do that now.
0: Mm. Um, and I imagine the technology is like, using feeding the paper into chat gpt and then asking it to summarize it for you and then asking it questions that's another example of where it could help
2: absolutely and and the idea that you can mix and match with that so you can listen to a fragment get uh, gpt to summarize the next fragment and i think that's where we're heading is the idea that you can speak your notes or you can even this is a sort of idea i've been hoping will exist i think will come online in the next few months and that is that you could just find a paper you're interested in and have a conversation with it and the AI would be interpreting the, uh, the paper. It would be creating an avatar that has the knowledge of that paper. And you'd be having to be able to have like a two-way dialogue, right? And how cool would it be? You could just have a conversation with um, the whole works of Dickens. Or you could have a conversation with um, any academic paper. Or you could have a conversation with, not James Clear, but the book, Atomic Habits. You could have a conversation with that fictional person. Like, that would be such a new way to engage with this kind of information. And, like, I thought that was sci-fi. I thought that was, you know, when I was a kid, I kind of dreamed that that might happen. And it, it's like all the blocks are there, right? It's just whether or not they come together in the right order. And that's only yeah. months away. So it's like, it's cool. It's really cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've seen something like that for API documentation. So I'm oh, sure really? it'll be long before it'll be ready for books as well. It's just probably a, an issue of context that you can't fit a whole Charles Dickens novel into ChatGPT that maybe that's the Facebook model where it's got a, a million line context. Totally. Speaking of Dickens, what do you enjoy doing in your off time? Are you a, a fan of classical literature? <laughs> do you know, it's funny that um, I
2: love reading. I, I uh, Like I was saying earlier, um, I really struggled to read when I was younger. Um, and there was a two-week period where suddenly I could read. So I went from not being able to read at all to suddenly being able to read. It was really the startling thing that happened to me when I was about uh, eight, nine, ten, something like that. I was still quite old, but it, it suddenly happened. And it's just a developmental thing, right? Just suddenly clicked. Um, and after that I read a lot. And, and now I still like reading physical text, but mostly I listen to audiobooks. And I, I listen across the gamut. I like the novelty of I'll read, you know, Sherlock Holmes, which is really good, it's read by Stephen Fry to get the audiobook. It's it's I reckon it's the best value deal on Audible because it's one credit's worth and it's like 48 hours of audio or something. <laughs> it's insane. Um, but so there's those sorts of stuff. And then I read um everything in between. Lots of, you know, philosophers and thinkers and uh uh, so all across. And then to relax, I, I read and I watch and I listen to music. And I, uh, I used to do a lot of public speaking and debating uh, when I was younger, when I was at high school and stuff. Uh, I, find that, I found that really helped me advocate for myself, is what lots of people talk about sometimes in the neurodiversity diversity space, uh, which is that I can articulate some of the feelings that I'm having and make the case for why I should get support. Uh, and I feel really lucky that I can do that. And that's because I had this hobby of debating public speaking when I was younger. And I remember really vividly my mum... I came back from a debating competition or something, and my mum was asking me to, I don't know, clean up or you know, go have a shower. I don't know what it was. And I started saying, Well, there are three reasons, mum, why I think I shouldn't do that. And she looked at me and went, I've made an error taking you to those classes out, a big error. <laughs> and I remember thinking, Yeah, like, this is great. You know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Um, <laughs> so you can't, you know, you can't just
0: you know be rude and
2: not very nice about it but the idea that you can think about thoughts and work out how to frame them and articulate them so that they have the impact that is in your mind that's a really useful skill to think about i think um, so I, yeah i spend lots of my time trying to find new ideas and new things and you know my background's in design so i often do little design projects to relax or i do woodworking or leatherworking, or you know some 3d printed thing or, or whatever it is so it's always it's always cycling and changing
0: Nice. I was going to ask about the cupboard behind you, or the or the little drawers. Yeah, Anyone? yeah. So Where all these drawers are that?
2: all these drawers. If you're listening to the audio, I've got this big case behind me, uh, and it's, it looks a bit like an apothe- apothecary cabinet. It's got loads of drawers. Uh, this is one of my strategies to uh, organise my life. Each of these is a kind of project or a kind of sort of component of my life. There's like an electronics. Thing with my solderer, and there's a there's a leatherworking one, and there's like little prototypes for projects that I've, I've never gotten done. My favorite thing about it, though, is that I uh, I cut the dips by hand for all these things, the sort of the finger holds And there's one here that I forgot to do,
0: um,
2: so it's just it's just a bit of paper I've just stuck on, so I could you know it work. And that's the kind of hack you need, right? That's the kind of hack you need. Um, is if you forget to do a little cut, that's all right. Just you know color it in. Most people won't notice. It's all fine.
0: <laughs> Love it.
2: Yeah.
1: So, uh, Elsa, can you tell us a little bit more about your
2: morning routine and how that's evolved over time? Sure. Sometimes I don't realise how important my morning routine is uh, until it goes away or until for some reason I haven't been adhering to it. Do you guys feel this way? And suddenly you're like, wait a minute, this thing is really useful. It's really important. And I'll come to the end of the day and I'll think this was a really useful day. What was it that made it so successful and so fun and so exciting? And it was because I set things up really effectively in the morning or, as is often the case, the night before. I was doing the planning for how I'd sequence my morning, and that was what, what helped me kickstart into the day. Um, but I get up at, I, I wake up in bed, I try my best not to have any, um, any kind of technology that interfaces with the outside world um, in the bedroom. I don't always achieve that, but it's really useful to try. Um, and just experiment with it even a day a week is kind of interesting. Uh, often, by the way, I think strategies don't need to be strategies you do all the time. They can just be one experiment once. And that can, you know, that can sit in the back of your mind and, and give you some really helpful, uh, helpful new thoughts for, for what strategies you want to adopt. But yep. in my morning, I, I get up and I, I often run out to work. Um, I'll have some meeting in the morning that I need to get to. But more recently, what I've been doing, and it surprised me because I wouldn't thought it would be as useful as it, as it has been, is I get up quite early, about sort of six, seven, eight o'clock, and I, I will go to a yoga studio and I'll do, I'll do a little yoga session. And it's awesome. It's so much fun. It's really relaxing. And for me, my partner, she does yoga every evening and she has for two years, every night she can do it. She can sit down and it's a remarkable thing. That's not me. I tried it. I try and join in with her and it's you know not happening. Uh, So instead I, I go to a place and it's not like a gym. It's not sweaty and unpleasant. It's calm. It's tranquil. There are other people there that are focused and that are doing their thing. And that collective thing, I'm kind of using them as a kind of body doubling exercise, right? I'm going there and they're all doing the yoga and I'll do the yoga too. Actually, I don't, Duck, duck out after 15 minutes I stay there for an hour because everyone else is and it's kind of fun and then you feel relaxed and you have to do five minutes of mindfulness before everyone starts because no one's doing anything so you just have to sit in your own head for a bit then you do some movements uh, which is good and then you stop and you rest for a few more minutes and there's some nice sound in the background and you go that's really good so that's that's my most recent thing is a few days a week I've been going and doing that uh, and for anyone that's thinking about trying it but hasn't tried it yet give it a go and try lots of different Yoga Studios, find one that sort of fits your vibe. Um, there are some that I felt like I didn't want to intrude. I felt like, oh, this is a group of people. This is not my space. I don't want to you know, be that person coming in and, and not being sort of sensitive to that. So I went to a few, tried, found one where everyone was really warm and friendly, and I went there. Um, and there's an app called ClassPass, ClassPass, um, and that lets you just buy one class at a time rather than like a, a weekly subscription. So if you want to try, you can sign up and basically go to three or four places for free um, before they actually make you pay for a class and it ends up being about 10 bucks a class or something after that. So it's pretty good. So that's what I do. There you go, that's my morning routine.
0: <laughs> awesome, that would be amazing doing an hour in the morning and mixing in some mindfulness as well. Mm. And I agree about going to a particular location really helps. It's to probably, totally. yeah, totally. the body doubling aspect of it too. Mm. Do you carry that body doubling approach forward into your workday as well?
2: I really try to. Um, and I don't know if people can relate to this, but like when you're at school or when you're at um when you're at a job where you have to sit and write and work, um, it's difficult to try and connect to people and use body doubling really successfully. Um, I'm very lucky. I've uh, I've got colleagues and I, I book meetings and I often I'll give myself like a three hour gap between meetings, which sounds really inefficient, right? That like why would you go in and then wait three hours for another meeting? But that three hours is golden, right? <laughs> that three hours is awesome. So I know what I've got to do. I know there's a clear end point so I use, yes, there are people in the office and that's nice. So I do body double in that way, but also just having the fact that I know there's a finite period of time between two locked events, uh, but it's, it's time I can use for myself. It's not time I've committed to anyone else. Uh, it, those sorts of things I do at work a lot and they're really, really useful for me. Yeah.
0: Nice. And During those three hours, any other productivity hacks that you use to stay focused? Oh, great question. Yeah. Is the answer. Um, <laughs> Uh, There's loads of different
2: tools that I use, um, and it really depends on the kind of work you're doing. And I think we were talking about this earlier, um, that there's no one strategy that is a universal strategy that always works for me. And there's no one app or tool or system that I've locked in and I'll never stop. I'll never be willing to stop using. Um, And the danger is that you want the game of productivity to overcome the act of productivity. And I think that's a big risk. So you have to make sure if you're going to jump to a new app or you're going to experiment with something, that it's worth the jump. That if you're switching, like I use Notion as my note-taking app, but for years I've been thinking, what if I used Obsidian? Maybe that would be better, right? (laughs) And maybe it would be, right? Different note-taking app lets you visualize and connect notes together in this kind of um, second brain way where you're digitizing all your thoughts and the connections between those thoughts, so you can offload them and and, um, think about them in a new way. And that goes to the kind of leapfrogging as well, which is that, like, my memory is... Pretty good. It's okay. It's not perfect. I forget stuff sometimes. Everyone does, particularly uh, people that are neurodiverse. There are some types of things we forget really easily, right? But if I use an, a digital mind to remember things for me, I don't make my memory as good as the best person with the best memory in the world. I make my memory infallible. It can't be forgotten. It's locked in, like it's it's like superhuman levels of memory, right? And so, uh, so I use Notion, uh, but I, I sometimes jump think jump over. I use a bunch of speech-to-text tools um, and text-to-speech tools. So all my meetings, I think the key one, the best one I'd really recommend to anyone is use some kind of audio note-taker. I use one called Otter. That auto-joins all my Zoom meetings. Uh, uh, I sometimes I get in trouble for that. If there's like some important like staff meeting, I have to like manually turn it on. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I have my Zoom meetings. All my meetings in person, uh, if it's some important work thing, I will say, hey, do you mind if I um, you know, take notes using Uh, use right now, and I'll just use my audio note taker, and I've never had anyone have a problem with that. The only response I've ever gotten, well, there's two responses. One is, sure, no worries. Or, oh, that's awesome. How does it work? (laughs) The two responses, right? Um, So Otter is awesome because it records, it creates a transcription of that recording. Uh, If there's some bit of the transcription you don't like, you can click it and just listen back to the audio if you need. Um, And it will also give you an automated summary of that meeting too. Uh, and so I can, I've got a little search engine and I can search every meeting I've ever had with my PhD supervisor. And it doesn't matter which meeting it was, the system remembers it all. Um, and so when I'm there, I'm really present, I'm really focused. All I'm focusing on is paying attention to what's being said and what I might say next and why that might be interesting. I don't need to remember about what, what it actually was said five minutes ago. That's, that's locked away in the vault. That's already, already remembered for me. Um, hmm. So the, the productivity hack is work out the things that are pulling you out of your work and try and take them down one by one. And if it's it's that you're listening to music um, to try and, you know, focus, but actually you just end up like bopping to Taylor Swift's new re-release or something, then switch to stuff without lyrics or switch to, I use Endel as my um, uh, procedurally generated audio system. And that takes my heart rate from my Apple Watch um, and uses that to track the music so that it stays in pace with my heart rate um, and keeps me focused. Um, but there are loads of different tools, so experiment. There's BrainFM. There's uh, just LoFi on the LoFi Girl or whatever on, on YouTube. There's loads of stuff, so pick whichever one's best for you. They all have slightly different flavors. Um, but so I listen to music. I use note-taking apps, so I don't forget stuff, and I use audio note-takers, and they're the kind of and I use lots of timers as well, um, and those things together generally helps me. Yeah.
0: I'd like to dig into two of the things you said there that I didn't fully understand. One was with the in-person audio note-taking. Do you use an app on your phone to do that or is that a literal audio note-taking physical device?
2: Super interesting. Yes, I use my phone
0: mostly um, or
2: my laptop or my iPad or whatever it might be. Um, And uh, you can set up a shortcut on your phone. So rather than opening the app and then starting recording, it's just one button, which is just the start record button. Um, So that's what I do. And you can do that on um, iOS or Android, whichever platform you're on, it will work. But I've recently seen that there's a new sort of class of recording device, which is specifically for AI note-taking. And it's a physical recording device that you can have. Uh, And there's one on Kickstarter at the moment. I forget what it's called. And you clip it to the back of your phone and it uses the vibrations of the phone to pick up the other person's speech as well. And so that's kind of interesting if you want it to be everywhere and you want it to be separate to your phone. You could just bring the little box with you, but I, I usually just use my phone.
0: It's a great idea. I hadn't really thought about doing it in a, you in know, in-person meeting. And that makes a lot of sense and doing it in a way that is low friction. Cause that's, I guess the concern for me that I'll where's my actual voice note app and how do I start it? But using the shortcut would make it way easier. Absolutely. The other one was, how do you spell, was it Endel the. Heart yeah. Rate
2: yeah, yeah, I think it's Endel. Let's get it up, Shelby.
0: I think I've heard of that. Is it sometimes used with workouts as well, that it'll change the, the cadence I of think, the music depending on your heart yeah, rate? I think that's
2: right. I think that's right. Um, E-N-D-E-L, end um, They're They're really interesting because you can ask them to help you focus or help you sleep or help you study or help you read. And they have created, they've tuned the um, the AI generator so that the different options you select are gonna try and push you towards those activities, um, which is kind of cool. But again, some people find it super useful uh, and other people find it annoying and slightly disorienting. So, you know, give it a go, see if it
0: suits you and then um, go from there, that's what I'd say. Yeah, It's really mm. cool though, I like it. Absolutely. One other thing that often helps people with their productivity is taking frequent breaks. So we're gonna take a short break We'll be cool our next question after that hello there this is joey
1: i'm excited to tell you about a project i run where i help imaginative people just like you breathe life into their creative dreams like writing that book or performing that stand-up comedy set i know the first step can be daunting i've been there many times and have helped many people on a similar journey if you've wondered how to bring those ideas swimming around in your head to life get in touch will shrink the intimidating dragon of a goal into a cute little lizard of an achievable daily habit that you can do every day to get started and stay moving. Click on the link in the show description to get in touch. And we're back. So Alistair, um, what's one habit you'd like to remove from your life? Either a bad habit or one that takes up too much time?
2: I love this question. I think it's such an interesting one. I've been thinking about it throughout a whole interview, thinking, how do I, how do I get to this? Uh, so I noticed something a few months ago now, uh, and that was that I was following the news and the, the politics and the kind of uh, daily sort of debates in three countries: in the UK, which is where I grew up; um, in the US, which is you know, a big important country, and it's where my partner's from; and in Australia as well, which is where we are. And I thought to myself, but none of this actually like matters. Like I can't actually do anything about it. Like it's important. The world you know changes and, and things happen. And it's important to know what they're going on. But I thought to myself, why am I listening to the news? Uh, and I realized it was maybe just a form of like entertainment like you know I was like oh well you know I I don't watch The Voice or I don't watch like Real Housewives or something but I listen to the news and that's great but it's just a kind of slightly fancier form of entertainment sometimes and you have to be really careful and I realize I have to be really careful with picking like is this because I really think it's important to know or is this because it's fun to learn like it's fun to be informed but it's not important to be informed particularly the test I use now is like will this be important a month or a year from now and if not sometimes I go you know, maybe not. And that, and that's, I think, so that's the habit I'd really like to get rid of is, you know, consuming so much news. And, uh, you know, I do try and have a varied source of, of news and often try and lo- access long-form news and stuff. But actually, news is kind of often quite negative. It's quite depressing. It frames problems and it doesn't often offer solutions. Uh, and there are other news sites like Future Crunch, I think is like, uh, you know, only good news. It's like, you know, the idea there is that there's so much news and not enough of it is good news. And so Future Crunch is just exclusively good news. as the sort of antidote to uh, depressing news. Uh, but all of that, I'd, I'd really, maybe I'd have a bit less of that. So maybe I'd have a little bit less news in my life. That would be my big thing to cut, I reckon.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. I, I've yeah. often been a slave to the headlines. There's a, a great book by Alain de Botton, New, The News, a, a User's Manual, and he talks about how mm. it's better to have a, an approach which is more slow news of reading potentially periodicals that are once per week instead of once per day or once per hour, because there's how how much can we actually consume? And like you said, how much we can control about it. And one of the things that it does for me is it makes it very hard for me to sleep if I've read bad news. So how about you, you Switch off in the evening? Also uh, I think an important thing, because I think
2: although people think the the morning is the beginning of the day and the evening is the end of the day, they happen really close to one another. There's just some sleeping in between, which we're not really aware of. So they're really one in some in one ways, it's, it's useful to think about them. I think in just one big block, right? Um, so if you don't have your shower in the morning, you have a shower in you know only you know one block of time before that last evening. Um, but how do I unwind? I I try and mix it up. Is the short answer. I do. Um, there's one habit I I I'm really quite consistent with, and, and that's that I go for a walk most evenings after dinner my partner and I will go for a walk for half an hour or something uh, around. And, you know, you really get a sense of where you live and, you know, where you are in space. And I think that's useful when you're working during the rest of your day. It's just knowing, you know, roughly where you are in space. I think that can ground you a bit, uh, but also that movement. Uh, and you can get to unpack some ideas of what your day meant and, and what you're going to do in the next day. Uh, and when I come home, I feel like that's the hard line that before, um, before i went on my walk and we had dinner maybe external things could come in that's possible maybe there's an email maybe i get a phone call maybe we go out something like that but after that walk it's only looking inwards it's only winding down it's only having the shower to close out or you know 10 minutes of meditation or uh, listen to a, a book or read a book or or watch some show but it's always uh, down not up and not out kind of critically always in so that's how i
0: wind down It's that's maybe the line in my sand um, Love it. And it's probably good for digestion as well, going for a walk after then,
2: Totally. Apparently, it's really good for the Mediterranean diet. As you, you, know, you have all your olive oil and your, and your veggies, and then you go for a walk. And apparently, that's really good uh, from a sort of overall health standpoint, too.
1: Well, you just mentioned the Mediterranean diet. Is there, are there any other resources like books, philosophies, apps, academic theories, sensory toys that you find yeah. useful in productivity and habit formation?
2: Uh, absolutely. Um, there are so many different Things like, you know, we could do another three hours on, on sort of all the stuff that might be useful. And I'd love Let's to do it. you guys think as well. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But for me, I think there's kind of two ideas that I think maybe are ideas that not everyone in this space thinks about and I think are kind of useful. So they're the two ideas I'll, I'll try and share with you guys. And there are lots of people that write about it and think about it. Uh, and the first one is that throughout civilization, we've created labels and definitions and boundaries to things that you are, you know, you know, you're happy or sad and you're successful or unsuccessful, uh, or you're clever or stupid, right? And I think that that actually is a human construction. It's not the way nature is, and it's not the way human minds have evolved. And with neurodiversity, it's not true that there is a clearly bounded disorder of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, most people who have ADHD, for instance, don't actually have that much um, hyperactivity. Um, <laughs> it doesn't, you know, you can't track their symptoms. So The key thing there is to think about and expand the way you think about yourself beyond just any one label. Some people find the label really useful and edifying, particularly in later life if they're getting a a term that they can associate all the challenges and difficulties they've had. But I would say really great benefits come from thinking that any any kind of thing that makes you happy is an ADHD strategy, Um, and I think anything that makes you sad is an outcome of you as a person, as an as an owl or as a as Jeremy or as a whoever it might be that's just you to some degree. And so I think breaking it down that way, lets you come up with alternative solutions to the difficulties that you have. It lets you solve one thing with another. So if you have a focus problem, like maybe, you know, I don't know, joining a a football club, that's a really useful thing because you're suddenly exhausted and you've, you've relaxed and you've done something physical and that's been really great. But that was just you doing a fun thing that you liked. It just happened to have a side effect of being useful. And actually, if you live your life looking for positive, helpful, exciting things to do, you'll find that your mind will push you towards things that as a whole help you and the strategies that are effective. And so I would say that's just one thing is locking down in terms of ADHD or in terms of dyslexia or any kind of neurodiversity. Uh, Mm. I think sometimes if you're finding that focusing too much on that isn't giving you the the benefits you you expect, try zooming out and seeing if that helps you. Um, So that's one sort of philosophy or idea that I think not everyone uh, talks about enough. I think that's really useful. does that I also exactly. relate yeah.
0: to, in in terms of people taking on the label and it becoming a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy that, oh, I'm going to be late because I have ADHD, rather than also looking at it that it's it's not destiny that there are things that I can do to change it and it may be harder.
2: Absolutely, I think that's a really important point. There's this idea of an internal and external locust of control, and that just really means. Do you think? that you're in control of what happens to you, or do you think the world is conspiring to, to make things happen to you? And there's loads of evidence and loads of research that says that if you believe you have an internal locus to control, you're more able to achieve things in your life, uh, you're more happy, and the other people around you are more happy too. So I think that's a really important point, and that comes to using ADHD as an external thing, an externalizing thing that lets you justify in terms of outside of yourself, I don't think can be, help- I think it'd be really unhelpful. Um, explaining things, explaining elements of your personality that you can't maybe help. That's you know, sometimes really useful. But the idea that because you can't help it, it's not you and something that you're not doing, that I think is the jump that might go a bit too far. So I think be wary of it. And sometimes I think we all thought great about that, which is oh, like, I, like, it's not my fault the bus is late. And like, it's true, it's not your fault the bus is late, but the bus was late and you went on it and such is life, right? Um, and you can still be pretty optimistic and happy about it uh, with, while also saying, well, oh, I'm really sorry, that was me. You know, what, a, what, a, what a shame. Um, and people are usually, when you're sincere and, and friendly, they're pretty, pretty open to errors, particularly when you take responsibility for them. Um, mm. So I totally agree with that idea. I think it's a really important, really important addition. Um, and in fact, I was just, I did at Melbourne Design Week, I did a, uh, a workshop that was called A Sense of Purpose with a couple of colleagues of mine. And if this workshop we developed and the workshop was trying to work out, particularly in creative industries, but really across all industries, uh, what it is that gives you purpose and gives you forward motivation to do things. And the research is really interesting. I'll just share one little fragment with you guys, which is that we do this exercise that lets you pick different types of motivations and sort of sort out which ones are the ones that are really important for you. And it's surprising because lots of people have really different motivations, but you can cluster them really into a few categories in terms of things to do, that are to do with the sense of purpose that you have in the world, you know, really magnifying a sense of expertise that you have, a sense of curiosity um, uh, and a sense of uh, community or connection with people, right? Um, and then finally, there's this sense of obligation towards things that are sort of structural barriers. And the research shows that if you have an even mix of these things, not just like, I just want to be seen as the expert. I just want to feel like I'm working for my people. If you have a mixture of these areas, that's what can be the most successful. And the only exception for that is obligations, things that are an external locus of control. I have to do this thing because work says I have to do it. I have to do this thing because I'll be fired or I need to make money or, or my family says I need to do it. That thinking actually pollutes all of the other motivations. Um, And it means you get a massive drop in productivity uh, and efficacy. So the research is really clear, which is a diverse mix of motivations, but ones that you are choosing for your own reasons, for you wanting to do it. Um, And so, yeah, that's what my research says. And that's what I try and take into my life as well.
0: Sometimes not successfully, but I do try. Hmm. It's interesting with the difference between community versus obligation. Is it a difference between if it's obligation, it feels like, oh, I have to help my parents versus I love my parents and I want to help them.
2: Totally, and uh, when I've been working with people, it's been really interesting uh, that a lot of people they say, "Oh, I've got this obligation to my family or to work." Like they gave me a job, and I feel like I need to keep working there. But actually, underneath that is actually an intrinsic motivation, which is I love my parents and I want to help them. You're totally right, and so just acknowledging that you might describe it like, "Oh, I have to help my mum today because she asked me to," and actually, although I love my mum, she's great. But you know, let's say you felt that way. Um, uh, actually, underneath that, it might be yes, you feel obliged in this moment. But, you know, you actually have a different sense, a sense of purpose towards being the kind of person that helps people when they ask. And that's an internal thing about the person you want to be. And so that's OK. But you have to work out, go down the line to see what it really is that motivates you. Um, and, and people, when they do some exercises that I've been working on uh, with my colleagues, um, we've been working on how to make people do that digging. Because it's quite difficult sometimes. And doing it with people is useful too, which is why we often use workshops as our sort of ways in. Because in groups, you can compare and go, oh, you do it differently, why? And, and that's fun too,
0: but yeah. Yeah, fascinating. I feel like we, we definitely should do another episode. I've got a sure. meeting in a couple of minutes, so I'm going to have to cut this one short. Just one totally. or two questions. Where can people connect with you? Is your website the best place?
2: Yeah, at the moment, um, alistairgirling.com is where you can send me an email. There's a little form on there. Uh, it's a really simple site, but that's where it is. You can also probably contact me through uh, my university page uh, which is if you go on the Emerging Tech Lab, you can uh, you can find me as one of the PhD candidates there. Uh, but again, I've got lots of projects that will always be emerging. So if you go onto one of those two places, hopefully you'll find a link to whatever's happening next.
1: Wonderful, Elsde. Do you have any final words or asks for our audience?
2: Ooh, yeah, I do. Um, and that is just—it's very easy um, when you're facing when you're struggling in the world when you're when you're a diverse person uh, to try and be really quick to to find absolutes. This strategy works perfectly well. Uh, This person is is really engaged and will help me, or or it really isn't engaged and doesn't get it. Um, And sometimes it's true. uh, But I often find that uh, trying to sit in the nuance of why something's more complex, uh, why there's a deeper story, and why our own minds are more complex and more nuanced than we often realize, uh, that unlocks a whole world of opportunities. But that's just for me. And maybe that doesn't work for everyone. Um, And and that's part of the fun of it, right? And so all I'd say is, we've got all our own strategies and sitting and comparing them is probably the best chance we have of um, of moving forward together. And I think that works really, really well. So hopefully everyone who listens to the podcast can reach out and and we can talk about what strategies we're going to use together. Wonderful,
1: and we'll wrap the show with that.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Focus and Chill podcast. To listen to other episodes, jump onto podcast.focusbear.io. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a good fit, email us at teamfocusbear.io. At Otherwise, stay focused, stay chilled, and peace out.